there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. For you note-takers, I didn't even give you the title for my talk, the first talk. The title was A Peaceful Heart. Uh, the three elements of a peaceful heart are surrender, trust, and acceptance. There will be no such thing as a peaceful heart, at least it's not going to last very long, unless it can, unless you observe those three necessary actions. We will be disqualified from being instruments of peace unless we ourselves have a peaceful heart. And I don't think there's a greater enemy to a peaceful heart than self-pity. May God deliver us from self-pity. And the latter part of St. Francis's wonderful prayer is directed to exactly, precisely to that terrible quagmire that it's very easy for us to fall into. I want to give you a statement by St. Teresa. She's one of my heroines, too. Probably many of you know the story. I don't know whether it's a legend or whether it's really true, but the story is that she was dumped out of a carriage in an accident and landed in a ditch. And when she looked up to heaven, she said, Lord, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. And uh, St. Teresa was a tough lady, and this is what she says about the love of God. I wish we had God's reply to that remark of hers. I'm sure he had something to say. She said, let everyone understand that real love of God does not consist in tear-shedding, nor in that sweetness and tenderness for which we usually long, just because they console us, but in serving God in justice, fortitude of soul, and humility. Does that bear repeating? Let everyone understand that real love of God does not consist in tear-shedding, nor in that sweetness and tenderness for which we usually long, just because they console us, but in serving God in justice, fortitude, and humility. I want to tell you the story of Mrs. G. She came to a meeting in which I spoke about Matthew 25:40, and as much as you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. And those words pierced her heart. One of the illustrations that I gave was a woman's love for her husband. We are to treat our husbands as we would treat Jesus Christ. Jesus clearly is telling us that we are to treat everyone exactly as we would treat him. And he says, inasmuch as you have not done it for one of these, you have not done it for me. He takes he, he takes our place. He identifies himself with us. And when we suffer, he suffers. And so we are to see in every person we meet the identity of Jesus Christ. 
And as Mother Teresa said, don't ever confuse Saint Teresa with Mother Teresa, both of them women of God, I believe. But as Mother Teresa said of everyone representing the image of God, but some of them are in such distressing disguise. Isn't that the truth? Well, Mrs. G had had a terrible marriage, 33 years of absolute chaos, misery, destruction, destruction of her children, destruction of her own life, she felt. And just shortly before she had come to this meeting, she had decided, she and her husband had agreed that it was not worth trying to continue and they were going to get a divorce. She decided that what I was saying was impossible, but she was going to try it anyway. And so she decided she would go home and start treating her husband as she would treat Jesus. I walked into the room, the living room, she said, and he was sitting as usual on the sofa like a mummy watching the TV. She said, I hate that scene. And I said to him, may I speak to you for a moment? And to her absolute astonishment, he turned off the TV to listen, which he'd never done in 33 years. Well, she said, when you're talking to Jesus, what do you say? I didn't know what to say, she said. And then I thought, well, you say, forgive me. And she started to confess to her husband all the things that she had done wrong. Of course, for 33 years, each one had been pointing out to the other one all the things that he or she had done wrong. And, of course, it's always the other person's fault, no question about that. And her husband, of course, was astounded and stopped her before she got through her list. And he said, honey, I want you to know I've always loved you. But he said, the reason I wanted to get a divorce was because I thought I was such a burden to you and the children. And so he began to confess his fault. And she said, it was a total transformation. She said, we are in love in a way that we've never been in love before. And when she wrote me this letter, it had been a month since she had tried that experiment. Well, I kept that letter and I pondered over it and I prayed for her and I thought about it and I thought, I wonder how things are going now. And I managed to tra track her down on the phone and asked her if I could use her letter as a testimony in my newsletter and perhaps in my speaking and maybe on the radio. And she said, of course. She said, I would just be thrilled if it could help one person. So I said, well, how are things going now? And she said, well, it's been four months now. She said, we never went a week without an argument. And we haven't had an argument yet. She said, you know, every time my husband used to go out the door, I would hope he'd never come back. And she said, now, I'm in love with this man. We are in love. I told this story in Atlanta, and a lady could hardly get to me fast enough actually. She said, Elizabeth, I can't believe you told that story. She said, mine is exactly the same, 33 years, a terrible marriage, and she said, my husband and I are absolutely madly in love now. But she said, you know, I was worse than that lady, Mrs. G, because every time my husband went out the door, I would pray that God would kill him. Well, last week, I was in New Hampshire, and I told that story again. And in my question and answer time, here came a three-by-five saying, 
my story is exactly the same as those two women. She didn't say it was 33 years, but she said, you've had the same kind of a transformation. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. It's not mine. It's his peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. There's a peace that the world doesn't know anything about. You see these peace bumper stickers, you know, peace, just that one word means absolutely nothing. Sometimes it says peace has to begin with you, and I certainly agree with that. But it's a quality of peace that is totally undisturbed by anything that this world can dish out. Our home looks over Massachusetts Bay. We have beautiful, gorgeous view, red rocks in front of the house. And to me, the most dramatic time of year is the winter storm. And I love sitting there at my desk and watching the teeth of the seagulls as they ride those crashing, roaring waves. They're just sitting there. Total peace. Doesn't make any difference that the rain is pouring or the snow or the sleet is coming down and the waves are crashing against the rocks and these tremendous swells. And sometimes when the waves crash right over them, I don't expect to see that bird again. And of course, they're just like a cork. Just sitting there. God's peace is a different quality, isn't it? It is not interrupted by circumstances. I'm so glad we had the medley of hymns about the cross, reminding us once again that there is no other refuge. And it's unfortunate that most of the hymn books omit a verse from Beneath the Cross of Jesus, which is one of my favorite verses. It says, O safe and happy shelter, O refuge tried and sweet, O trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. As to the holy patriarch a wondrous dream was given, so seems my Savior's cross to me a ladder up to heaven. Now, have you thought about the cross of Jesus as being a refuge, tried and sweet? A trysting place? The first verse says, Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, a shadow of a mighty rock. How many of you have been to the Masada in Israel? I see a few hands. Well, that is one of the mightiest rocks. I guess it's the mightiest rock I've ever seen because it's so isolated. It's just tremendous rock sitting right in the middle of just barren, barren desert. And I didn't know what barren wilderness meant until I went to Israel. But at certain times of the day, of course, that mighty rock casts a mighty shadow. Perhaps that's what Elizabeth Cleason had in mind when she wrote that hymn. The shadow of a mighty rock, a refuge within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest. Shadow, home, rest, refuge, Christ in place. That's the cross of Jesus. No wonder it holds a wondrous beauty for us who have found our salvation there. And you remember that when Christian and Pilgrim's Progress reached the cross, that intolerable burden that he had been carrying fell off, rolled down the hill, and into a tomb. 
And Christian looked up then and he said, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And that's exactly what God wants to do for you and me today. Rest by his sorrow. Some of you are very restless. Some of you feel nothing but unrest inside because of something chewing you up. Perhaps some anger, some hatred, some hurt. Would you pray, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace? Where there is hatred, let me sow love. That's exactly what Mrs. B did, wasn't it? She went home and sowed love. And it was an almost instantaneous transformation. Exchange. Hatred for love. The cross stands as the mighty, towering, or all the wrecks of time, the mighty proof of that principle of exchange. I bring him my sins, and he gives me his righteousness. I bring him my sorrows, he gives me his joy. I bring him my hatred, he gives me his love. I bring him my injury, he gives me his pardon. And he says to me, will you offer my pardon to that person who has injured you? Three things in this talk, and this title of this talk is Love Sacrifice. Number one, love is an absolute point of departure. Love sacrifice means, number one, that love is an absolute point of departure. I move from here, where I am in my sinful nature, to there, through the power of the cross. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And there would not have been a resurrection without the suffering. God wants to transform us, transform our lives, transform our influence, transform our attitude. And it can only be done at the cross. And I heard a pastor say, not very long ago, if you are going to someone who calls himself a Christian counselor, and he does not take you first to the cross, you are being ripped off. Think about it. That's where we have to start. There is no other refuge. There is no other transforming power in this world but the power of Christ which would not have been available to us if he had not said, Not my will, thine be done. And if we are going to be followers of him, give up our right to ourselves, take up the cross and follow him, it has to be a continual, Not my will, thine. Not my will, thine. Even in the small things that you think are such trivialities and they don't have anything to do with your spiritual life. There isn't anything in the world that doesn't have anything to do with my spiritual life if I am a Christian. All our problems, my husband Ad used to say, are theological ones. All of them. He was a theologian and a philosopher, but he was also a man of very good common sense. And if you've got a problem, it's a theological one, first of all. What are you going to do with it? What is your response going to be? Is it something that needs to be changed that you can change? Change it. Is it something that needs to be changed that you cannot change? Accept it. Is it something that needs to be changed is it something that you can change, but it is not you that's supposed to do the changing, 
leave it to God. Ruth Graham says, we do what we can and we leave what we can't to God. Love is an absolute point of departure. Mrs. G decided to forsake all the bitterness and all the feelings and all the injury, and the injury was real. The cause of bitterness, the cause of her bitterness was real. It was trespass. When we forgive somebody, we are not declaring that we condone what they did. There's a lot of confusion about that. And the most memorable thing, most memorable illustration, I don't think I will ever forget, of this radical ab- abandonment of my viewpoint, I saw on nationwide television on a talk show of which the host is one of the most cynical people, and you undoubtedly will guess his name. Cynical about Christians, cynical about just about everything, sardonic in many, many ways. I happened to turn on the TV just at the moment. Now, I have to confess, I do have a TV. It's not in a comfortable place where I can sit down and watch it. We have one in the dressing room so that we can get the first five minutes of the morning news. And we have one with a screen about this big in the kitchen so that I can watch while I'm cooking sometimes. And it so happens that this TV show happened to be on when I was cooking supper. And I just turned it on at the moment when there was a very earnest young man looking straight into the camera and saying, I forgive them. And I thought, what have I turned into here? And of course, I immediately was glued to the set to see what in the world was happening. And a woman in the audience immediately leaped up and she said, that's it. That's it, she said. If you forgive what they did to you, you are condoning what they did. You're just saying it's okay, it's fine, it's nothing. And he said, no, I said, I forgive them. He said, I don't care what you said. He said, that's sick. You got, did you have a head injury? Well, as the thing went on, I realized that I was looking at Reginald Denny, who was the trucker who was beaten in the L.A. riots several years ago, beaten almost to death. It was Reginald Denny saying, I forgive him. And this sarcastic host said to the lady that was accusing him of being sick, he said to her, well, isn't that what Jesus told his followers to do? To forgive them? And then a lady in the audience got up and she said, I want you to know that there's some of us here who understand what Mr. Denny was talking about. She said, I happen to be the mother of one of the men who beat him. And she said, Mr. Denny knows what Jesus did. And that is what he's doing for my son. What my son did to Mr. Denny was a terrible thing. He deserves to be punished. And she said, when I was in the court, and Mr. Denny came toward me with hand outstretched, she said, it didn't take us two seconds before we were in each other's arms. Can you believe that happened on a talk show? It was an absolute point of departure. It was wrong. He was almost beaten to death. And he says, I forgive him. But I've left out another interesting little sidelight. Another man jumped up in the audience. He said, what I want to know is, why did you get out of the truck? He said, you could have kept right on going. And Reginald said, yes, I could have. 
He said, I could have done a lot of damage with an 80,000-pound 18-wheeler. But he said, there were people in this business. And man said, yeah, but he said, you've got a club in, the, in your cab. He said, I'm a trucker myself. We've all got a club in the cab. And Reginald said, yes, I have a club in the cab. It's for testing tires. It's not for beating people. Jesus, when he was reviled, reviled not again. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. There was a new disposition in Reginald Dennis. An outrageous sacrifice. Incomprehensible to most of that audience. Stupid. Perhaps even indicating mental illness. Well, certainly isn't the first time Christians have been thought to be crazy, is it? And there's nothing resembling codependence in Reginald Denny's spirit. It was a laying down of all his bitterness and resentment and hurt at the foot of the cross. Love's sacrifice means an absolute point of departure. Secondly, it means accepting suffering. And here is the yes, Lord, that you and I are called upon again and again to pronounce. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Now I think this applies whether the injury is to me or to somebody else. If I happen to know two people, one of whom has been injured and the other one who is not willing to pardon that person, God may give me the privilege and the grace of sowing pardon in the heart of the one who needs to do the pardon, or sowing relinquishment in the heart of the one who has been injured. I suppose that one of the most desirable effects of or one of the most, one of the things that we look for with anticipation of, of the sweetness is for somebody to come and apologize to us for something that they knew they did wrong. There is a sweetness in recognizing that that person has said, I was wrong and you were right. The pleasure of self-vindication, the pleasure of receiving an apology, but of course, for most of our worst hurts, there isn't going to be an apology. So what are we supposed to do? Pardon him. Jesus said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who apologize. No, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Those who trespass. When I was a little girl, we said that well, not just when I was a little girl, but all through my growing up years at home, we said the Lord's Prayer every morning after breakfast, following hymn singing and Bible reading and prayer. My father led in prayer, and then we joined in saying the Lord's Prayer. And I strongly recommend that you teach your children to pray. Give them form. And you can't do better than to give them the form that Jesus gave to his disciples. When you pray, say this. And those words forgive us our trespasses were always a mystery to me and I didn't even think of asking my parents what it meant because I thought I knew what it meant. In those days we used to see little brass 
plates on people's front lawns that said no trespassing. And I never walked on anybody's grass. I was a good little girl. I didn't see why I had to say that every day. Of course, it took a while before I realized that trespassing means any kind of walking all over somebody, injuring them, wronging them in any way. I must be willing to receive the injury. And that takes sacrifice. That takes giving up my right to myself. And I embrace the cross in acceptance of suffering. Now what is the cross? The cross is anything that cuts across my will. When the will of God cuts across the will of man, somebody has to die. I have to be willing to die to myself. Back to my college years, that last year of my life, that was my college life, when I was approaching graduation and there were no prospects for a husband on my horizon, and I was beginning to suffer what we used to call senior panic. If you go to a Christian college and you don't find a Christian husband in a Christian college, where in the world do you ever think there's going to be such an array of unattached males? And I expected to go to probably Africa as a missionary, and I really didn't like the idea of being an old maid missionary. So when Jim Elliott, to my amazement, asked me to go for a walk a few weeks before I graduated, he said, I think we need to get squared away how we feel about each other which astounded me because I didn't have any way of knowing that he had any feelings for me and I certainly didn't think that he had any right to think I had any feelings for him because I certainly had not allowed him to know in any way whatsoever by so much as a flicker of an eyelash, I hope, that I was interested in him. Of course, I was, very much so, ever since the Christmas preceding that when my brother had brought him to our house for Christmas. So when he said, I think we need to get squared away what we how we feel about each other, I said to him, what do you mean? And he said, what do you mean? What do I mean? You know what I mean. I've been in love with you. I'm in love with you. And I, I said, oh? <laughs> or something like that. And he said, didn't you know that? And I said, no. How was I supposed to know that? And he said, well, I've been trying to show you in every way except verbal. And of course, I was absolutely amazed and irritated to think that he thought I had some feelings for him. But then began the severest test of the commitment that I had made when I was 12 years old. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit, use me as thou wilt, send me where thou wilt, and work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. That was a test of the validity of our commitment to Jesus Christ. We did not call anything about our friendship a, quote, relationship. And I hear these young people today talking about relationships, which are indefined, undefined and indefinable. 
but they get themselves into very deep yogurt, as they say in California. And as we sat in the park on that beautiful May morning and talked about the way in which God had led us through that year, we discovered that each of us had been struggling mightily against our desires for marriage, both of us believing that God was calling us into pioneer missionary work, which might require that we remain single, especially that Jim remained single because there were very, very few single men. I think there were 79 single women missionaries in Ecuador when I was there, and there were two single men, besides Jim and his colleague Pete. By the time they got to Ecuador, they made four single men. But at this point, of course, we were college students. He was a junior, and we were honest about our desire for each other, which is not to be recommended. My father very strongly told my brothers, do not ever tell a woman I love you until you're ready to say, will you marry me? And I think that's very good advice. But Jim didn't hear that advice, and I'm not sure he would have gone by it anyway. But to me, this is a very down-to-earth and very real for me at the time point at which I had to accept the suffering of not knowing if God was ever going to bring us together. Jim said, you go ahead and go to Africa. I'm going to South America. If God wants to bring us together, God knows how to do that. But he said, I am not asking you to wait for me. I'm not making any promises of any kind. He said, and I'm not going to lay a finger on you. I can't because I don't, you don't belong to me. You belong to Christ. And so we made the covenant then that we would not indulge in physical contact. And it was then that this prayer of Amy Carmichael's, which I had somehow or other memorized before that, took on tremendously significant significance meaning, tremendous significance for me. And shall I pray thee change thy will, my Father, until it be according unto mine? But no, Lord, no. That never shall be. Rather, I pray thee blend my human will with thine. I pray thee hush the hurrying, eager longing. I pray thee soothe the pangs of keen desire. See in my quiet places wishes, wrongs, forbidden, Lord, purge, though it be with fire. And work in me to will and do thy pleasure, till all within me peaceful reconciled carry content, my well-beloved leisure, at last, at last, even as a weaned child. It is Acceptance of suffering, which is the acid test of the reality of the work of the cross in our lives. This room is full of the representatives of many, many kinds of suffering, probably most of which are much worse than anything I know anything about, at least many of which. The letters that come in my radio mail are just absolutely staggering. I cannot get my mind around the stories that come ostensibly from Christian homes. Terrible things that are being perpetrated against each other. What can I say that is not going to be accused of simplistic? The answer is nothing. There isn't anything I can say that isn't going to be accused of being too simplistic 
what can I say but take it to the foot of the cross? Take it to the foot of the cross. It is a safe and happy shelter, a refuge, tried and sweet. And of course, in my saying that, I'm hoping that where there is doubt, I will be helping to sow faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. But you and I both know that we do not possess love, pardon, faith, hope, light, and joy as any property of our own. We find it only in Jesus Christ. And he died for us so that we, awake or asleep, might live in company with him. If every woman in this room went out today living in company with Jesus Christ, it would make a difference. In Oklahoma, in the state of Oregon, in Virginia, in Texas, in Massachusetts, and all the other states that are represented here. We are to be instruments of God's peace. And when I pray, Lord, make me an instrument, I am covenanting with God that I will receive the honing process. If I'm going to be made in the image of Christ, there are going to be some hammer blows. You can't make an image without the blows of a hammer. There will be the chippings of the chisel, and there will be the raspings of the file. And probably the raspings of the file will come daily in the form of somebody that you either have to live with or work with or get along with somewhere, somehow. The raspings of the file. The Lord wants to get the sharp corners off you and the sharp edges. Well, but that other person is so much worse than I am. No, I mean, she really is impossible, isn't she? And the Lord is just saying, do you want to be an instrument of my peace? I have to shape the instrument, and you've got to let me use it in any way I want to. Number three, love's sacrifice involves the astounding offering, the opposite of what was received. Reginald Denny presented an astounding offering to the man who had beaten him. The opposite of what was received. Love for hatred, pardon for injury, faith for doubt, hope for despair, light for darkness, joy for sadness. It seems outrageous, doesn't it? And this question, which is a red flag in the minds of almost every woman who's married, this question of submission to your husband is probably one of the most common sticking points. And I hope that those of you that have heard my radio program have heard about the book by Elizabeth Wright Hanford entitled, Me, Obey Him. And Elizabeth Wright Hanford was my debate colleague when we were college students. We were in the same class, and she has written a blockbuster of a book which convicted me on every page and I hate to tell you that I didn't read that book till about a year and a half ago and I had been going all over this country talking about submission to husbands and I realized I'd been leaving out a whole lot of things that I myself needed to start practicing. Me, obey him, me, do that, me, uh, forgive the person after what she did to me, 
me offer light after the darkness that she has brought into my life? Yes, that is exactly what love does. It makes an astounding offering. Now, what is the world's idea of what love does? Well, love has to feel good about somebody, don't they? That's what love is. That's really about the only thing they can think of. Love and romance and, you know, they change the wedding vows and say, as long as we both tell love. And when love sort of runs out, quits like an old monster machine or something, then you just turn it in and you get another model. We are to not only to forgive, but to accept and to offer the opposite. Jesus said, if somebody takes away your coat, give in your cloak too. Is that reasonable? No. Very unreasonable in terms of the world. Jesus said, if he hits you on one cheek, turn the other. And Lars tells me that his grandfather, a godly man who raised Lars in Norway, actually did that at least one time that Lars knows about. A man punched him on one side of the face and he turned the other one. Can be done, but only by the grace of God. Check out Matthew 5, verses 38 to 47. The whole thing is, humanly speaking, impossible. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Did you know that was in the Bible? Do not resist an evil person. Now, I know that if we had discussion time now, there would be 25 exceptions to that that you would be able to think of. Well, surely he doesn't mean this. Surely Jesus could not have meant that. And, of course, I'm not an authority to say, no, surely he didn't. All I would be able to say was, what did he mean? What did he mean? That's my question. That's all my, that's the only question I can ask. I can't be the authority that says he did not mean this, he did not mean that, but this is what he meant precisely. I just want to ask the Lord personally, in my case, what do you want me to do? If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons, daughters of your Father in heaven. That's the kind of treatment that we are responsible to offer. The creative power of the heart, which is the will, not the emotion. In the Bible, I believe that the word heart refers to the will, a faculty with which God endowed man when he created him. We have a will. You willed to come here, otherwise you would not be sitting in this pew this morning. You can get up and walk out anytime you want to. You have a will to do that. The creative power of the will, not the emotions. It doesn't make any difference whether you feel like returning hatred for hatred or injury for injury. God tells us that we can be instruments of his peace, but we have the will to do his will. Independent of the attitude of others, 
And any of you who have walked for any great distance on the way of the cross have learned that the company thins out. The further you go on the way of the cross, the less understanding and consolation is going to be. God says, relinquish your fears. Give them to me. And the last half of this prayer to me is desperately needed in today's world. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. And this became a life-changing truth for me when my second husband was dying of cancer. I don't remember ever knowing the St. Francis prayer before that, but someone gave me a little book which unfolded this glorious scroll, panoply, of truth of the transfiguration of suffering because of offering that suffering. And I began to, to pray this prayer again. I who felt so desperately the need of consolation. It was my job to console my husband. Not to be consoled. I couldn't expect my friends to be hovering around. You know, you, when you hear that a friend has cancer, then you write him a note, you send him a present, you make a phone call, you make a visit. But you can't do that for the next ten months or six years or whatever. And we cannot expect it. So we pray... Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. And I began to discover that my own doubt and despair and darkness and sadness over the prospect of losing my second husband began to fade into the background when I began to try to console somebody else. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.